David, and yet his hair was so extensive and so much that one of the Bible writers points out that it would be an extent of 200 shekels per year. As we'll see later in the lesson, that was a lot of hair. But at least for now, you and I notice. On the other hand, we come to appreciate Mary, where we learn in the New Testament she used her hair to wipe the feet of Jesus after anointing His feet with the ointment in John chapter 12. By now, maybe we should pause and at least appreciate these things are a few of the matters that the Word of God has shared relative to hair. The last two on that slide are these. We also remember that the hair that was reckoned as gray, or that is to say, turning into that appreciation of silver, that was connected to and attached to that element in wisdom and experience and older in years. That was not looked in the Old Testament as, in fact, something that was to be disrespected or something that was to be frowned upon, but rather appreciated for the attribute of wisdom and experience and capability of instruction that it brought. Specifically, the verse in Deuteronomy 32.25 is the one that highlights it in that marvelous song of Moses. There are those that were bald. Were you aware of the fact that that was a, certainly an apparent thing in Elisha's day? In fact, the prophet was bald, 2 Kings chapter 2. And yet, that in fact was the setting for a very unusual set of events in which Elisha made pronouncement upon some who insulted his baldness. You may want to read about that late in that chapter to reflect upon what happened to those who insulted the prophet's baldness. For right now, let's close that slide like this. What about the white hair mentioned in the Revelation? Where it was connected to the greatness of the Master Himself, Jesus was under description in Revelation 1. And it brought about the understanding of honor and dignity and the absoluteness of His majesty. I say all of that to say that those are some of the passages that relate to the appearance of hair in the Bible, sometimes more or less and sometimes varying in colors. But isn't it amazing the Holy Spirit preserved that information for us? It wasn't trivial or arbitrary. The next part in our lesson will be the utilization of the message of hair, starting by this interesting appreciation. One of the things that probably comes to mind rather quickly is the placement on occasion of the reference to hair as it connects to God's interest in us and His care for us. May I share with you what I mean? Let's start in Daniel 3.27. There was a statement made on that occasion. You may remember that the three friends of Daniel had been cast into a fiery furnace. And as the king witnessed and looked upon it, even he made the observation, not a hair of their head had been singed. In other words, that was a description of the fact that here were these three Hebrew children. And as they were cast into this burning fiery furnace, it had been because of their faithfulness. The king had erected an image and they had refused to bow before it. They had refused to idolatry, idolatrously worship it. 
And as a result, the king, true to his word, did cast them into a fiery furnace. And yet, the observation is made, they don't even smell like smoke. Not a hair of their head has even been singed. Doesn't that remind us God had been watching over them? The protection had been complete. Today, as you and I make an application of that, can't you and I understand that our God is sovereign? He holds the whole world in His hands. And as long as your life and mine is hidden in the hollow of His hand and carefully protected by Him, what have we to fear? For if God be for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31 Look at another example. This time taken from Luke 21.18. This time in the heart of the New Testament, we notice that even in that beautiful gospel account, the statement is made in terms of the hair of your head, and that in fact, it is not only known in number to God, but it's also such that He will not turn over the reality of your life to powers beyond Himself. The Lord, in fact, watches the very hairs of your head and mine. He knows what the number is. If God is so concerned with the hairs of your head and mine, if He knows that number, what else does He know about you? Doesn't that mean He knows everything about us? And it should be our thankful experience to so live in such a way that that life is an open blessing to His way. Maybe one last observation would be Acts 27, 34. The shipwreck. As Paul was making that journey to ultimately stand before the Caesar, we remember the shipwreck was a tremendous one, and yet Paul had been told, you will arrive safely, and those that were with him needed to stay aboard the ship. Not a hair of your head will perish as long as you follow the direction of God. For them, of course, that related to their staying aboard that vessel. In a proverbial way, aren't you and I told the same? If we will stay aboard the faithful vessel of proper service, we will not perish either. The hair has been mentioned in all of these contexts so far. I chose to mention the next one rather explicitly just so we could draw another lesson or two from it. Jesus said, the very hairs of your head are numbered. The founding fathers of our country, if you revisit and read somewhat about Benjamin Franklin and various others who assembled in the Continental Congress in the 1770s, and as they were laboring to put in place the foundational bedrock for a new nation, Benjamin Franklin stood and rather powerfully asserted the needfulness of prayer among that assembly. Because he said, if a sparrow cannot fall without his knowledge, can a nation rise without his aid? I think we'd have to give a degree of credit to Benjamin Franklin's resolve and in fact to some of the other matters that took place then. But among those matters, the understanding that the very hairs of your head are numbered, that's a number that even you and I do not know. You know, I don't know, at least in most all cases, how many hairs are on our head. Some do, probably when the number's near zero. But otherwise, God knows that number. Doesn't that at least remind us of how many things He knows that we do not? 
the extent of his knowledge that's beyond our capacity and beyond our capability, at least at this point in this flesh. Doesn't it remind us of his absolute greatness, his awesomeness, and the omnipotence and the omniscience that goes with his being? The hairs of your head are numbered. Jesus made that statement almost in passing, and yet how prolific was it? No wonder that next statement then is this one. There is something to be noted in this about the powerlessness of man. I say it like this. The powerlessness is highlighted in Matthew 5, verse 36. If you'd like to revisit that particular passage with me, it was Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. And in that passage, He had this to say about hair. The observation takes this form. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. Now we understand today that there are those who can dye their hair and they can make it artificially appear a different color than what it naturally is. That was not the Lord's intent to teach anything about that. He was saying in a natural way, you and I have not the power to say have our hair if we wish it to be red or we wish it to be blonde or we wish it to be black. We can't just instantly speak that word and make that occur. The Lord used that idea here in that context to say, we need to be mighty cautious about the affairs beginning in verse number 33 of the way that we speak things and the power of our words. No wonder in that light we may close that slide like this. There are other passages that use a reference to hair and do so in a way reminding us about things that man can say. Promises of men. May I draw your attention to 2 Samuel 14. In the heart of the Old Testament, there it was an unnamed woman. And as she was in fact given words to say by Joab, she addressed David. And ultimately an interesting message appeared. And in that, there was a reference to not one hair of your son's head will perish. Here was a king that made a promise. Are promises of kings always faithful? Are promises of leaders always trustworthy? Sometimes you and I have a very different appreciation, especially in election years, of what might well be said, but what sometimes does not come to fruition. At least in this case, the king made a promise concerning the hair on the head of a woman's son. One last thing would be 1 Kings 1.52. This time it had to do with Solomon. And may I say that the promise he made about Adonijah's hair, ultimately it was Solomon that gave orders for Adonijah to be killed. Something to be said about then the power of a king and what may or may not come to pass, given their truthfulness or their faithfulness. All of this has been mentioned so far as a reminder of some lessons that the Bible shares concerning hair. But the lesson text is what we journey to next as we ask about how long should hair be? What should we appreciate about the length of hair as would be pleasing to God? I suppose this is a question that has frequently been asked. 
And may I say, as we begin our consideration of it, there really will be more things under discussion than just the length of hair. I confess that the length of hair will be a part of that discussion, but we shall find many more interesting things that will naturally appear as that discussion proceeds. But may we begin like this. We all understand, and it was true not only in the present day, but in days gone by, in days past, that there are some men that have short hair, and there are some men that allow their hair to be longer. And there are women who have longer hair, but some women choose to wear shorter hair. To say all of that is to say this. There are some appreciations, some biblical guidelines that we must at least be mindful of. It all begins like this. God created two genders, two sexes, if you please. And it is that truth that not only has been an absolute fact throughout the ages, but it seems in our modern day is an issue of very great import. We made note in a lesson now about three and a half months ago about the fact that God did create but two sexes. And although it's true that in the modern day there are some who would claim that there are approximately 25 genders, God said, absolutely not. There's two. Only two. There's the male and the female, Genesis 1 verse 27. In the very outset, at the creation, He made them male and female. Now, that alone leads us to use that fact as the next thought presents it. Namely, in the reality of the two genders in that fashion, God made a decree. He made a declaration. In the words of that song that we sung a moment ago, He made a proclamation. It was that the sexes are to be distinguished. And that distinguishment is to be evident. If you'd like, be turning with me to Deuteronomy 22. Now, I realize we'll revisit the heart of the Old Testament in that, but the point nonetheless is one we shall extend by using some New Testament passages as well. Deuteronomy chapter 22, the language was sufficiently direct to take this form. The context was that there were a number of things being asserted relative to the behavior of the children of Israel. So we are discussing, in fact, those that served beneath the law of Moses, but this statement is found. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. In other words, it was basic and fundamental for those in Israel to appreciate this. A man should look like a man, and a woman in appearance ought to look like a woman. They were not even aware that which would give the natural appreciation of the other gender. They were to be distinguished completely and evidently. It was not to be a matter, as you could tell from that passage, that was to be taken lightly. Did you notice the way it ended? To, in fact, fail in this regard was called an abomination, which is a very, very strong term. It is the case, with that noted, that you and I can appreciate that at least in terms of the physical body, 
the most natural, or at least one of the most evident ways to distinguish male to female was the length of the hair. And thus on the slide, you might notice what a duty then it would be to ensure that one instilled in one's children the understanding that we've just noted. It's a bit then a bit of a sadness, isn't it, when there's a failure on this point. When a little boy is allowed to grow up in such a way that he obviously too young to understand, but his parents or his otherwise influencers allow him to appear like a female or a little girl. And as she grows up, she is allowed to present herself by way of appearance, including perhaps dress, hair, or otherwise, as if she's a male. Now, in the Old Testament, as we've noted, that was an abomination. As you and I noted in the lesson text, and as we appreciate near the bottom of that slide, there are more verses that help us in this regard. Would you journey with me to 1 Corinthians 6? In that particular passage, a question is asked that begins the discussion. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, at first thought, that may appear so evident. Well, isn't it obvious the unrighteous will not, shall not inherit heaven? That's a basic premise of Scripture, isn't it? But the application for us is look at where Paul takes that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Who are these unrighteous? Let's let the text describe it explicitly. Be not deceived, neither fornicators. So there's one of the category of the unrighteous. Nor idolaters, second in the category. Nor adulterers, the third element in the category. Nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Next verse, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. Now much could be said about every one of the elements in that list. But could I draw your attention to perhaps one of the words in that list that's less familiar to us? Did you notice in verse number 9, reference was made to effeminate. What does it mean to be effeminate? As a parent, what might I do that in some way could encourage my child to be effeminate? Because if I'm encouraging that, not only am I wrong, I'm leading my child in such a way that he or she, as the case may be, would thus not be pleasing to God. I've asked you to note the definition. The word effeminate comes from an original Greek word that not only has the idea of soft within it, but the particular application will be rather direct. Soft, it can, of course, in other passages, refer to clothing. Certain kinds of clothing that are unduly soft. You may remember John the Baptist did not wear any such thing. Didn't Jesus ask, What went ye out for to see a man clothed in soft raiment? That's the same Greek word. But we aren't talking about clothing. It's talking about a person, and particularly a male, a male who does not act manly. A male who acts too much like a female. God says, this is not good. To be rather specific about it, it would appear to refer to a class of individuals, the passive partner in a homosexual arrangement. Hear me again. The passive partner in a homosexual arrangement. 
Now, in that case, notice Paul says, don't you know the unrighteous? And that includes specifically the effeminate. This is not good in the eyes of God. Now, did you notice the whole idea then that we began with has at least led us to appreciate that? So doesn't it still follow that it is the will of God that there be a distinction between males and females? A man needs to act like a man. He needs to dress like a man. He needs to look like a man. And by the same token, a female needs to look, act, and dress like a female. To perhaps drive that point home even a bit more thoroughly, Paul continues that discussion in 1 Corinthians 11. In fact, just four chapters forward, we arrive at a particular discussion that begins like this, verse 1. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. And what a lovely appreciation to follow you and I as we, of course, are followers of Jesus. But now in that discussion, hair is going to be a very vital part of it. Notice particularly in verse number 3 and 4, the highlighted hierarchy that occurs. I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now all of that begins it. And now the application. Verse 5, Every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is even all as if she were shaven. And as those matters are developed over the next few verses, we finally arrive at the lesson text of verse 14. It is to that verse that I would direct your attention. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. There was a reference in here in Holy Scripture to what apparently is the understanding connected to the natural order of things, but a rather gentle and rather direct reminder that there is a shame connected with failure on this. Therefore, how critical is it that we encourage young boys and we make sure that they understand that they are a male and therefore there are certain duties, obligations, and responsibilities that will be theirs in life. And by the same token, a female, she too will have certain obligations, responsibilities, and duties. And notice they're distinguished. For instance, that young man will grow up to be the head of his house at some point, and God's going to judge him in light of that expectation. God won't judge his wife as the head of the house, for that was never a duty given to her. If the man were to fail, she may have to in some way to take part in that activity, but it's the man that will be judged on that failure. Isn't it interesting then that as that distinguishment was highlighted, it was even here re stated relative to even a subject touching the hair. As that slide goes onward, maybe we could at least appreciate this as well. And I suppose... In the specifics, this would be a good question. So if long hair, apparently, on a man is not pleasing to God, how long is long? You notice God didn't seemingly answer that directly. It doesn't give me a number of inches. Hair can't be on a man any longer than, say, this many inches. 
or this many spans, again, using a, a particular relative to Old Testament matters. But what you and I can seemingly say is this. In a given culture, in a given placement, we understand there ought to be a clear distinguishing between the female and the male. And the hair on the male should well not be into that particular length that would allow the possibility of confusion from those that would look upon from a distance that individual. And by the same token, the female's hair ought, again, not to be overly short, at least by her own choosing. Maybe it's interesting to at least reflect on then one final set of things. I've called them other matters. Maybe you have already given some thought to these in your mind. Can you think of other places in Scripture wherein the length of hair might well at least lead us to ponder these matters? May I suggest Absalom? Here, as I mentioned earlier, perhaps more attention could be given. 2 Samuel 14. The 26th verse of that chapter will tell us something about the handsomeness of Absalom. It would appear from the passage there was no man in Israel as handsome as Absalom. The text, in fact, rather explicitly says, from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot, there was not a blemish in him. Can you imagine, perhaps, how much it would have been pleasant to look upon him? I suspect that was a part of what made him so popular among the people. Now, it's true, he told them what they wanted to hear, and that in many cases will make you popular. But it's also true that quite often throughout the history of mankind, those who are blessed with appearance or looks often find themselves in a position of great adoring by many, many people. And so it is in that verse. Let me ask you to listen as I read somewhat about Absalom. I'll start reading in verse 25. But in all Israel there was none to be so much praised as Absalom. For his beauty, from the sole of his foot even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he polled his, his head, for it was at every year's end that he polled it, because the hair was heavy upon him, Therefore he polled it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. As you can see on the slide, it would appear then that once a year Absalom would cut his hair, and as he did so, the weight of it, 200 shekels. I've asked you to appreciate on the slide that that would amount to a rather significant amount of hair. Quite likely, as you and I would imagine, the, the arrangement of the shekel in comparison to, to our modern measures of, of weight, you can understand a sizable fraction of a pound is, is under discussion here. Now, in light of that particular idea, I've asked you to note on the slide that there was something to be said then. Here was a man who didn't cut his hair. Could I ask you what kind of man Absalom was? Would it be one you'd look up to for godliness? Would it be one you'd look up to as an example of righteous living? I don't think so. He rebelled against his father. He forced David off the throne, at least for a short time, and he became king because he wanted it. He didn't care about what happened to his daddy. 
He didn't care about what happened to his own father. In fact, he even committed fornication with the mistresses, the wives, if you please, of David. I do not think Absalom was a man you'd look to as an example of godliness. The fact he let his hair grow long should not then be used as an example for you and I in terms of thinking we could please God this way. Another example might well be what's at the bottom. We find some other references to hair that was cut or plucked. Sometimes the circumstances surrounding this, very troubling. Why don't we begin in Ezra 9 verse 3. We have a record that whenever there was a sufficient occurrence of lamentation or great grief, sometimes the hair was plucked or sometimes it was cut in a very unfavorable way. Another example would be in Nehemiah as well as those other two prophetical books I've mentioned. I suppose the Ezekiel passage is the most direct one. In Ezekiel, the fifth chapter, God specifically gave a message to the prophet relative to hair and to the things about it being cut. At the very least, we could say that hair was then to be a reminder of God's judgment when it was treated in that way. I know we live in a society wherein it's difficult to imagine in some ways that aspect We seemingly have our choice. We can let our hair grow. We can cut it. We can do any number of things to it by changing its style or otherwise. But in that day and time, there was something very specific. And when it was cut in an unusual way or when it appeared in a different way, it was a symbol of the judgment of God. Maybe one last set of ideas would be these. You perhaps have already wondered about the Nazarites. We've discussed them on Sunday morning a number of times in connection to various Old Testament occurrences. You and I remember the Nazarites in Numbers chapter 6 when there was a person who took that vial or when a parent made it for the case of a child, that person's hair was to never be cut. It was to then remain uncut. And that was to be a recognized sign of the vow that person had the, the, the vow that person had made. At this point, could I ask you then to appreciate that whether it be Samson or whether it be some other occurrences, there are things that you and I could at least rather readily observe. I've made a few comments, but those comments will summarize by follow, by, by, by the following. As the Nazarites made those vows, you'll notice that that long hair was then a recognized and evident matter that connected them to that vow that they had made. And it was to be an obvious thing that they were to be observed for in the society. The later minor prophets would make that observation as well. You and I would not be able to use then that as a claim or a statement, well, I need as a man to let my hair grow long because didn't the Nazarites do it? There was a different purpose in mind, and the purpose today, as highlighted in 1 Corinthians 11, for example, has been a purpose highlighted in distinguishing the sexes rather rather directly. And therefore, the law of Moses being completed, we don't live beneath it today. That law has passed into history. 
I hope then that we can at least say that the number of things the Bible has to say about hair has at least allowed us to discuss a number of things, including faithfulness to God, including the choice to always recognize the way to live distinguished to the other sex, and also to understand that the very hairs of our head are numbered, and that it's a reminder that God is watching over us completely and thoroughly. And it should be our greatest desire to live pleasingly to Him. The hairs on our head. As we've at least thought somewhat about that topic this evening, I hope it has motivated us to think that even a matter in life as perhaps obvious and as unimportant as our hair might be to some, in the mornings when we comb it or when we see it in a mirror or when we at least think about it, it should be another thing that helps remind us that the Bible even talks about this subject. And it reminds us of how important it is to make sure we turn over the fullness of our life to the God of heaven. For you and I can't make our hair white or black, and the very hairs of our head are numbered. This evening, as you and I think about ourselves and our life before the eyes of the ever-seeing eye of God, Proverbs 15.3 will say, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. That includes the hairs of our head. I hope that those hairs are indicative of a life of faithfulness, indicative of a life of godly wisdom, indicative of a life of submission to the will of God in every regard. But if that isn't so, if that is not evident to others who witness or observe your life or mine, it's time to repent. It's time to make a change. It's time to turn that life over in a new leaf, if you please such that those things then are true. And tonight, if we could be of assistance in some way to anyone in this, in this assembly, we'd be honored to fulfill that. If we could pray to God on your behalf as a wayward child of God, we'd be delighted to make note of your repentance and confession. And God upon that has promised to forgive you. If on the other hand, you would wish to become a Christian, there is no better life anywhere in any way than that one. It is a life in which you appreciate the ongoing leadership of the God of heaven, the blessedness of the Savior who walks with you each day, and the powerful presence they have in your life by virtue of the Word that they've given us through the Holy Spirit. And if we could assist you by observing your belief and your repentance, your confession, and then assisting you in baptism, we'd be happy to help. And we'd be happy to do it now. While together we stand and while we sing.